And welcome to the Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. We also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. In this episode, we're chatting to Richard Bramley, a farmer from York who recently became the chair of the National Farmers Union Environment Forum, to chat about all things farming, nature and policy. Eva, hello, how are you? Long time no see. Yeah, it's great to be back. Hello, hello, Sophie. How are you feeling fresh from finishing your book draft? (laughs) Um, well, I wouldn't say fresh, but I've certainly finished and it is a huge <laughs> relief. <laughs> Handed in the draft manuscript last week, so I'm enjoying a bit of um a bit of a lull before things heat up again. So the sun is out and the sea's looking nice and everything's looking quite green and perky, so it's lovely yeah. to enjoy that while I can. How about you? Oh well, congratulations from from everyone and all the listeners I expect as well. Thanks. We're looking forward to that book. But yeah, we're enjoying summer. Um loving it. Kids are on holiday and uh, doing as much seaside time as we can, all that kind of stuff. Great. We um, had a recent trip to see the newest additions to Longleat Safari Park. Oh, go on. Uh, Beavers are there, of course, which has been in the news a little bit, and it's really exciting. It's very cool to see them in a place full of such interesting creatures like tigers and hippos, and and then there are the beavers and all the beaver signs that you can see. It's really fun. I mean, it's just... It's it's an incredible thing to imagine, actually. And the fact that you can actually see species which haven't... I mean, so for example, the last time a hippo and a beaver coexisted in Britain was over 100,000 years ago when Britain was a giant interglacial swamp, which Isn't is an arresting image in itself. And so the fact that you've got these two historic creatures suddenly together in modern day Britain... Yeah. And like... And it just makes your mind run, doesn't it? You know, what are they... How do they react to each other? Do they talk to each other? Do they get along? Do they squabble? I mean, someone needs to do a PhD on this very quickly and let us know. PhD on squabbling beavers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, did yeah, your kids have amazing. a good time? Do they Are they as excited about it as you are? They are. They they love um, the beavers and they got very excited and they, they like telling people about them. But they, um, like most kids, were more far more entertained by the monkey aerial fiasco we had Um, so my car is still missing an aerial and they still laugh about it today it's great (laughs) that's very long though isn't it it Um, is did you ever go when you're little yeah I went once um with my mum and my brother we both went uh with we got a free entry with our blue peter badges which we'd won the week before for sending a photo I think think we just drew a picture for mother's day and sent it in Um, classic but instead of, uh, unfortunately, this is so embarrassing, actually, um, as, a, as an animal lover, instead of being really excited about all the animals, I really wanted to go in the flight simulator. So unfortunately, my memories of <laughs> my memories of Longley are taking my mum or dragging her into the flight simulator machine and then her nearly throwing up because it was quite violent. Um, <laughs> so we didn't have the classic monkey stealing aerials, but I still had a really good day out. And uh, perhaps I should go back and redeem my 
redeem myself a little bit well it is yeah you should go you should go because you can see the beavers now you go on the little um yeah. boat tour and there the, there are all the wow. fallen willows and things it's, it's really 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 cool yeah um and in latest news they've got oh. kits there now as well <gasps> So oh, quite on, on theme for this summer, that many beaver territories are popping out first kits. Yeah, quite literally. Um, yeah. Did you hear about the one on Exmoor? So I, I have a bit of beef with this. this oh, one. hello. Go on then. So it was uh, by public uh, support. It was named Marcus Rashford over and above the name Banksy, which was on the table. How can anyone oh. not name a beaver Banksy with their burrowing activities? Oh, that would have been good. Oh, contentious. Surely. I mean, Marcus Rashford's a bit of a legend, isn't he? He is a legend. He is a legend. Beaver kit, I, but, Marcus but Rashford. But I guess, I don't know. is he Something going to be Marcus? <laughs> is he going to be Marcus for short? Or is it always going to have to be, there's Marcus Rashford gnawing a willow? <laughs> oh, there's Marcus Rashford off for a swim. <laughs> Marcus Rashford's a bit of a this week. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Banksy though I'm, well he's I got to Marcus should... Rashford has got to have some kits and then he can call them <laughs> Banksy oh, oh football kit there's just so much in it it's, um... <laughs> oh, anyway dear. listen let's get on to the fact off have you found any great beaver facts in the last few weeks while you've been um, studying away at home well, I actually have, and um, I'm very surprised that I've managed to find one because we've been doing this podcast for nearly a year, and um, and we're still finding out new, amazing, weird, and wonderful facts about them. And it just goes to show how many incredible sides there are to this species that we're yet to discover. So my fact Lots is very to get short. Excited about. Yep. Indeed. Well, just you wait. Um, I actually only found out this last week from Chris Jones. Uh, who was very oh, animatedly be good. telling me about um, about his uh, his latest beaver behaviour down at the Cornwall Beaver Project. So when beavers are frightened, they can growl and hiss, which is just an amazing thing. And I really want to hear it and see it. So there you go. Beavers can growl and hiss when they're frightened. Please. Okay. Please, I mean, uh, I, I'm slightly speechless unless you want me to comment on a growling beaver. <laughs> By all means, be my guest. The floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> totally straight face. <laughs> Moving straight on in that case to um, to my fact for on the fact note. of. <laughs> I'm rolling out one of my all time favourite um, beaver habits. So they dig beavers dig beaver canals. Very well known for their dams, but behind their dams in the pond is often a beautiful network of beaver canals. Um, so they dig these, these perfectly formed little channels to connect the main beaver pond with either food or other um, areas. And these become really important aquatic habitats for various species. Mm. Even recently, there was a, a scientific paper that suggested that, um, that maybe we should start incorporating beaver-style canals into stream restoration practices because they're environmentally beneficial. Beavers got there first. You know, it's... Go on. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there was a paper which suggested that maybe we should build canals. <laughs> but I mean, it is crazy. And it, it's, um, I mean, we thought, I mean, we built canals as part of the Industrial Revolution. And I bet we thought we were so clever to think of that solution to connecting waterways. And yet beavers have done it all along. Yeah, they're, they're, they are pretty awesome. 
but they're, yeah. they're truly beautiful features to see. I saw a really mm. um, a nice example of one in Devon recently and they're perfectly sort of straight and then they angle and go off at another corner and it's just, ah, oh, I don't know, just nature creating this is just really cool. Okay, that is a good fact. Fair enough. And from canals to another activity borrowing, it is Ooh. often these not, not dam-related activities that are more often the cause of farming-related conflict with beavers, which is just such a beautifully smooth segue <laughs> into today's topic, <laughs> farming. One of those subjects that you wish, I certainly wish, I understood more, um, but the more you dig into it, forgive the pun, uh, the more you realise how totally complex and enormous this subject really is. Yeah, totally. I mean, I um, I actually had to check this statistic several times because it's just so massive. But 75% of the UK land is set aside for active agriculture. So to this day, 75% of the whole of the UK is used for agriculture, which is just astonishing. And so farming is basically all around us. It's omnipresent in our lives and very difficult to get away from. And we've almost just become totally accustomed to um countryside as being just countryside but actually it's predominantly active farmland um and we can largely feel so ignorant of its influence and importance in the environment but it's so important to actually take a step back and really understand what's going on there yes and with the climate and biodiversity crisis at the moment um worsening almost day by day it means that if you've got three quarters of the land set for farming, it's got to be mm. front and centre of the solution. Um, yeah. The farming community must be part of the conversations going on around the climate solutions and feel supported yeah. as both feeders of the nation and custodians of the landscape. Um, and as a result, I guess we've rightly been hearing a lot about various environmentally friendly farming initiatives like tree planting and nature-friendly farming, insect corridors, um, yeah, totally. All of those things could help tackle big problems like soil erosion. It could improve the health of the soil, encourage it to store carbon again, boost insect biodiversity, create nature recovery networks. All these buzzwords that you hear flying around conservation circles at the moment often stems right back to how we use the land and how we manage it. And we need farmers to be part of that chat. Um, but Absolutely. Of course, context is everything, isn't it? You know, the idea of the right tree in the right place. We're not suggesting that it's a blanket approach to make everything good for nature. It's really, really dependent on what, how that land is used. It's really complicated. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So as much as we wish it to be, it's just not very simple. Um, so we're really, really privileged and thrilled today to have such an expert guest recording with us to help us better understand the picture of farming in the UK. And most importantly, some of the challenges farmers face in trying to do the right thing by the environment. Yeah, so without further ado, let's chat to Richard Bramley. He's an arable farmer with a 570-acre farm in Yorkshire, with a string of environment and conservation awards in farming to his name. He's also the chair of the National Farmers Union Environment Forum, which meets to discuss and champion environmental issues and policy in farming. Richard, welcome to the Lodgecast. We are very excited to have you here, um, straight from the Combine, as the weather window closes for this round of the harvest. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great honour. Yeah, thank, thank you. Looking forward to, to the conversation. Oh, good. Well, listen, first thing we, we ask all of our wonderful podcast guests is that they kindly judge our Beaver Fact Off competition. So you've already heard our facts. You just need to decide which one you think is 
the most uh, worthy or the most epic. So could you please declare your winner for this episode? Will it be me with the beavers that growl and hiss or will it be Eva with the beautiful canals? What do you think? Um, I'm going to go with the the, the canal uh, building of 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 the beavers um i had an inkling yeah, tell I, us why <laughs> i think that um growling and hissing you know sounds uh sounds good but i don't think it's that unusual fair enough whereas i can't uh, think of anything else that would dig a canal well quite excellent yes. i'll take that okay, one very great grateful um so let's get straight well back on track we are genuinely delighted to have you represent the nfu on our podcast as there's such an important role for farming in nature and conservation in this day and age and across britain and we would love you to start by perhaps telling us a little bit about your farm and how you got into it um and what might a typical day look like for you at the moment and some of the environmental considerations and that kind of thing Right, there's a lot to pack into one question, so um, pull me back on track if I start to drift. But uh, I, I'm farming because it's a family farm, and I'm the third generation here. So my grandfather came here in 1935. He looked at a number, but he selected this one. I like to think because of the quality of the, the land, but it was also derelict. So he was told he could have it rent-free for two years if he brought it back into production um anyway he duly met a farmer's daughter and his sister met a, a farmer's son and uh, they still the families still live in the same village and i uh obviously i was i was born as uh, one of the, the children on the farm i happened to be the eldest uh, son but um at school my sort of strengths were science and i love geography it was what you mean. We used to do those um, careers things when you were sort of 15 oh, yeah. or 16. It was on the list. One of the few to actually fulfil that crazy prediction. <laughs> yeah, so I, I ended up um, studying agricultural science at Nottingham University. And um, I, I think I had always sort of thought that I would come back to the farm, but I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. You know, it was a, a curious world, which I didn't actually feel particularly part of. It was, the, you know, Yorkshire farm. It was a lot of flat caps and um, mm. uh, it's changed a huge amount in the 30 years that I've been on the farm. But one of the things that my father was particularly keen on was planting trees and bits of hedges. Mm. And it was just a point that every winter we would go to the local nursery and we would buy some some hedges and trees and we would we would plant them. It'd just be like a thing that we did. And so when I was at university, I, I'd heard this phrase, custodian of the countryside. So I didn't really, um, I sort of struggled with it, I must admit, with what mm. I saw happening on, on, on the farms. And I thought, well, why, why are we being called the custodians of the, the countryside? So it, um, it almost became, it's almost like, a I don't know, a personal thing that I've got that I like to be seen or be doing what I am in theory, supposed to be doing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of time for, you I might use the term guff, <laughs> or, or pe <laughs> people might call it greenwash these days. So I have very little yeah. time when I hear or read labels mm. on foodstuffs that talk about a lot of... Um, Spin. Uh, or or mm. big companies talking about how wonderful they, they are uh, when it comes to things. 
And uh, well, you're not really, <laughs> you know, mm. you, you're sending the wrong message often, uh, you know, you're not showing a deep understanding. And more often than not, somebody at the sharp end of producing food, um, you just want it cheap. And as we're seeing mm. now, cheap food is expensive in other ways. Mm. So it's been a journey, I suppose, over many years. And you asked me what a typical day was like. There is no typical day. <laughs> well, I think that's really important, isn't it? It's a really lovely reflection. Mm. What a beautiful image of you growing up, um, planting trees with your dad and hedgerows. I think that's just such a lovely way to look at you know, family farming, if you will. Mm. Well, those those hedgerows now are mature hedgerows, and I've continued to to do that. Um, I've I'm, I'm, again, I'm quite unusual in that, barring a brief period with a scheme called the entry level scheme. I've not accessed public money to do the tree planting, the owl boxes, the other things that I've I've done. I've tended to just sort of do them, much to my frustration sometimes, because you can spend tens of thousands of pounds on on hedgerow plants and then find that there's a scheme appears that would have paid to do them. Well, we'd love to talk a little bit more about your role as chair of the NFU Environment Forum. I mean, that's such an important role, you know, especially during a time like we're in at the moment with the climate and biodiversity crisis and population growth and all of these things. Can you give us a vision of how seriously the NFU is taking the state of British nature and the environment and what initiatives are already going on? A lot of our listeners, a lot of these concepts will be really new to them. So it'd be really great to perhaps give a little bit of background as to mm-hmm. kind of the, the steps that you're taking to to be these custodians, as you were talking about earlier. I saw recently that you launched the first NFU tree strategy in July. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this sort of goes back a little bit to the, the, the point that I was sort of making before about as a farmer, I'm sat fairly central to yeah. a lot of things. So if it comes to trees, then trees need to be planted somewhere. So that means inevitably... You can't plant trees where there are houses as, as a rule or roads mm. or car parks, although they, they are a feature of, of those. They're going to go on land. That land, just by virtue of the fact that we've, uh, we're a very highly populated island, um, mm. is, is more than likely going to be farmed. So if, at that point, the farmer is involved in the conversation. Um, uh, but the issue starts to become complicated when you often get single issue focus groups or um, NGOs who are all trees and that's all they're about Mm. and the world becomes trees. Mm. Um, I can't think like that. I have to think about trees and I have to think about my fields and what they produce and then I have to think about all sorts of other things, you know. Um, And so that's where having a strategy that's led by farmers on something that's important, like tree planting. And, and we know that governments of any hue, um, whoever had got in at the last election, they were having a battle about how many trees they could plant. But nobody actually thought to think about the practicalities of this mixed in with everything else. Hmm. So that's why it's important to have the farming voice in there, recognising, okay, we appreciate that trees are important. We like trees, but you're not always going to necessarily get the best results if there is a, a diktat from outside of the farming world comes in and says, uh, we need trees and we, you're going to have them whether you like it or not. Because sometimes you might do harm um, and sometimes there might be other consequences. So that's why it's so important to to have the farming voice. And that goes for just about every every other 
element of the, the, the crossover between farming and the environment. And I should say now that my view is that there isn't one or another. The two things are the same. I've always felt that's that that's what we that's what we have to do. We have to balance the needs of society, mm. pressures from society, the pressures yeah. from policy and government, the needs from small businesses, which is what most farms are, and the rural communities that they support. Yeah. So that's where the farming voice comes in. And when it comes to the NFU structure, you know, I, I chair the Environment Forum. We have three other forums. But one of the things that I think is, is quite telling is the quantity of very high quality staff that there are in the environmental side of the, the NFU. Mm. And we also recognise that there's a leadership role as well to play there because like any diverse you know, a bunch, there is all sorts of farmers. Yeah. And for some, the environment is a, is a major driver. And mm. for some, it's less so. But at the end mm. of the day, it's for any, everybody's benefit that we produce yeah. uh, both high quality, high welfare food that we need. And if you look at the predictions for where we're heading, it's going to be ever increasingly vital. So using our capacity to use food here is not a long-term solution. We have to do it in a way that delicately balanced with improving the environment, not just about keeping it as it is. Mm. It's about improving the environment. And that means we're going to have to make choices. And there's an interesting, a lot of interesting conflicts which crop mm. up when you start to go down that. Mm. That's a really mm. interesting thing about making choices because uh, and not expecting mm. to have it all, nor to conserve as was um it's improving it for the future, isn't it? And there's an inter interesting question we wanted to put to you around the historic um, distance between farming community and the conservation community in Britain, for example. But actually, I think I wonder whether it's more about um, people because there are conservationists probably within the NFU and that sector that you're just talking about. There are, there are people who want to do more for the environment and for conservation. Um, and it's about how do you bring a big conversation together so that the right voices are at the table to make those difficult choices um, in an informed way. And how, how can we better learn to work together and collaborate on some of these really tough things coming up? Well, the Environment Forum was formed in 2015. And even before that, I was encouraging, um, wherever I could, a good working relationship with NGOs, um, so the RSPB in particular, there was a really good local guy who I knew who was just practically sound. You know, he understood, and that's the important thing. And when people don't understand, that's where you start to get conflicts. So at that point, this is where characters come in. You need characters that are prepared to listen and try and understand. And getting people sometimes to take the blinkers off um, or to get out of that tunnel is is the challenge and i i mean it's something that i personally take uh, you know really enjoy is you know uh, you know i accept people's passion you know in in your mm. case you've, you've immense passion for a um, you know water dwelling rodent um perfect, perfect time. And, <laughs> uh, so i you know i accept that but it's my job to explain that they aren't necessarily always going to work and at that point, if we're going to avoid conflicts where there's problems, we need to be working together 
so that mm. we've got a mutual understanding of where those conflicts are going to occur and what we're going to do when it yeah. happens. From your perspective, Richard, how do beavers fit in for you here? Um, I don't think they would suit lower-lying areas where you've got drainage boards. It, it's undoubtedly an area of, of conflict. Um, uh, obviously, the, the beaver's role is to slow back uh, water and where you've got lower-lying land where we rely on land drainage and this is where we're producing a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also very vulnerable to sea level rises and flooding as sure. well. So, I mean, that's another, that's another mm. sort of discussion. Um, have you seen one in action? No, never seen one in, in real life. Oh, you'll um, have to come to the Cornwall Beaver Project then. I'll have to. Um, yes, Chris to invited me um, oh, cool. down there. Uh, in fact, we've got, we've got one uh, near Pickering, uh, a pair. Okay. So I'm sure that there is places where they are going to fit in with the landscape and they will provide that um, slowing the flow, which I think is critically important when it comes to catchment management. Mm. And they'll provide a, a natural element to that. Um, I suppose the, the question still arises, um, and again, I don't know enough about how their uh, their dams function. Is what happens if a dam bursts? Um, you know, and this is where there's probably a lot of room for for education and understanding. Absolutely, totally. So it might be that a beaver dam can do the job of protecting a village, but a beaver dam isn't as resilient as a what I might call an artificial beaver dam. Well, I think it's a really great example, as you've already said yourself, of where education is needed and where clear examples and experience, which of which there is you know, plenty, um, are needed to help allay concerns and also ha- even have the discussion. Um, you know, if mm. you've ever tried to remove a beaver dam, once it's fairly mature, it's pretty hard to do. But similarly, they do sometimes wash out. So, um, you know, one needs to look at the evidence there and and the location and every single context will be different, won't it? But one of the things that we have been looking at, as you know, and we've had a brilliant conversation about it before, one of the core policy areas is to help reduce some of the beaver farming conflict potential is to look at river buffers um, and buffer zones particularly. Um, because we believe that there is a huge potential for this to reduce some of the conflicts arising from beavers' um, work on the river. And I wondered if you could give us your own uh, perspective and then potentially NFUs if it's any different you know, as a formal perspective on the challenges and the complexity of introducing river buffers. And for me, one of the wonderful things that you spoke about before was how the continual demand for environmental practices on farms is putting an extreme pressure on the farmers themselves um sort of squeezed at the farm gate when prices aren't changing but there's all this huge expectation and the weight of different practices and layer upon layer of of request um so perhaps you could you could shine a little light on that as well but yeah your your thoughts on river buffers and what role they have to play as well in your experience at your farm would be wonderful to hear about a bit like um the tree strategy um you know, if river buffers are by and large they're going to be in the countryside that means they're going to involve farmers so the starting point has got to be the buy-in from from farmers and i think with any of these things it's um you've used the word education it's about you know educating us to the value what's trying to be uh, mm. achieved here and um i think that there's a quite possibly um in the past role for farmer clusters um in specific catchments and possibly in the 
um, second pillar of, of ELMS as well, the, the local nature recovery that could well be uh, a role there. Um, it goes without saying, unfortunately, that <laughs> it will come down to payments. Mm-hmm. If, a, you know, if a farm's going to be losing land that they've maybe been used to, um, to grazing or cropping, they're going to need to replace that income uh, somehow. Yeah. Um, so that that for me would be the starting point. Is you you need if you've got the buy-in of the local farming community, as you've seen with cluster groups all over the country. You know this, it is possible, and then you need to uh, have the funding and sort of take it from there. Henry Dimbleby said, I listened to him on the food program a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago after mm-hmm. his report was um, uh, released, and he did make the point. We've got to be careful with farmers because we are asking a huge amount of them. Mm. Uh, we we are, in theory, there to deliver on so many things. Mm. Uh, we've still got day job as well. And you know, I want to be involved in the sustainable farming incentive pilot. They find in the time in the day. Yeah. Um, and I've also got um we've got uh, carbon farming as well that's going to involve all work. Uh, we've just had our farm assurance standards all updated, so we now have more adherence to undertake there. And bear in mind that the stuff we're producing, we're competing on a world market where these standards don't exist. Yeah. And as I said to you in, in my um, WhatsApp earlier, you have to appreciate, as we were trying to get this this discussion together, I'm yeah, driven by the weather, I'm driven by the yeah. timing of the crops. You're at the mercy of everything. Richard, I was going to ask you actually about what are the challenges, what what are you worried about over the next 10 years? But I think I might switch that and spin it around to the other way. I think I might ask you, you know, what gives you hope for the next 10 years? Uh, because obviously it's very easy to feel consumed by the challenges and and feel quite uh, sad about the enormity of it all and you know, sat here listening to you talking about just the tip, not even the tip of the iceberg of the challenges that you face as a farmer. Um, but what gives you hope? What keeps you going? That in itself gives me tremendous degree of excitement, the, the, the possibilities, the challenges, getting it recognised um, and, and getting public opinion and, um, dare I say it, media opinion to start to flick the light on. And say actually to feel more represented. Well, do you know what? We've been denigrating farms for far too long. Yeah, we know they're not perfect, but they have we have been putting them under a huge amount of pressure for decades. They actually can offer a huge number of solutions and we are gonna need mm. them more than ever. Mm. Um so at some point that has got to reverse. Um and I don't think that's the point where personally as a farmer, it's for me to say, oh, well, you can sod off. You weren't there when we were really struggling. You know, this is this is, this is the time that we can really step up yeah. and start All to... hands on deck. Yeah, but there has to be an appreciation there that that's when, that my favourite word when I'm discussing these things, of, which is balance, that's where the balance needs to be struck. So mm. a conflict... There's a great conflict out there between the potential for plant genetics and mm. the anti-GM right. approach. And and I think that personally, 
looking at it from a scientific point of view, I think the potential is quite huge, whilst it's not necessarily perfect. And I think that's one of those, these are the sort of choices we're going to have to start to make, is what's the least worst sometimes option, unless you can change society. And this is where a dose of reality comes in. Because if you can change human behaviour and society's behaviours and society's needs and, needs and wants, yeah, good luck to you. But mm. but that's mm. the reality we're facing. We we have to try and do it within the constraints of of people, yeah, on an overcrowded island. And and to fit um, somewhat dovetail with Sophie's question, how can we be better as conservationists? So those who are um, you know, trying trying their hardest to come up with new ways to build resilience for nature and do nature restoration. How can we, you know, represent farmers better and and understand better? And and how can we, yeah, how can we approach it better from our perspective that would help the farming community feel supported and listened to and therefore work together? This is a good start. Um, you know, we're having a perfectly civil conversation um <laughs> around conservation and farming in general like i say i don't differentiate between the two i think i think they're both mm. and you're part of the green alliance i presume and i've said before that i think it's a shame that we don't have farmer representation in that group right um mm. so that rather than 50 environmental ngos heading off down a particular path that we've got a bit of moderation built in from the beginning that, well, actually, hang on, we can't just consider that. We have to consider those and, and mm. the, those other issues. And, and if that's the process, then you start to build consensus from these yeah. two different parties mm. that actually mm. really their strength is going to be working together. Absolutely. Because conservation isn't going to work without farmer buy-in. And conservation... Mm isn't going to go away and improving the environment isn't going to go away because it's absolutely essential. So farmers need to wake up to that fact as well. Mm. You know, I believe it's important to practice what you preach. And I definitely preach, you know, that we, we as farmers, we've got a vitally important role mm. in so many areas. Mm. Um, mm. But it's not yeah, without yeah. its challenges finding that, that, that balance. Well, I think yeah. it's really refreshing to hear this, I have to say, and I think hopefully our listeners will feel that too, and that there's a that this is very genuine as well. Um, as you yeah. said, it's not just talking the talk, it's walking it too, and that hopefully that will spread within the farming community as well, and that we can keep talking more together so that there's a helpful and supportive and positive collaboration rather than any sort of territory or war or... <laughs> Um, disagreement because actually we're all in yeah. this together ultimately yeah oh there's so there's so much to unpick here and um you know this is I think going to give our listeners so much food for thought and I think that this is just the start of what needs to be many many more conversations between conservation and farming and we wish we had more time Richard but we know you're very busy and um I think we need to unfortunately wrap this chat up for now but hopefully the first of of many yeah we'd love to invite you back on the podcast and dig a bit deeper into some of this yeah for sure especially food chain stuff that's something that we thought of today and we're like oh that's an episode in itself (laughs) no absolutely there's um i mean it goes back to what i said right at the beginning the uh the the green wash hogwash 
um, yeah, uh, yeah, guff yeah. that you see far too much of. Um, it's unhelpful. At the yeah. end, at the end of the day, what it does is it slows the progress that we must make, and it just wastes time, and we get nowhere. We spend all mm. our time trying to fight back against mm. that, rather mm. than hang on a minute, let's just take a scientific approach to this. Let's just think about it, and let's be realistic. Mm. Yeah, pragmatism—that's definitely what we need. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Richard. And um, we wish you the best with the next bit of the harvest and hope the weather's okay for it. All right. Thank you. Wow. One interesting conversation. Um, I found that so um, almost like we're, it's the tip of the iceberg, yeah. isn't there? There's so many angles one could go off at there yeah. because it's such a big conversation. Mm. And it was really refreshing to hear Richard's view on you know, that, that there isn't a farming and conservation. Mm. It's all one thing. Mm. And that, therefore, we all, the only way to get it right is to all work together on it. Yeah, I totally took that away from it as well in terms of, you know, one can't work without the other, almost. They're in like a symbiosis in many ways. And I think we just need more and more people like Richard saying that sentence and kind of saying, okay, differences aside, there's always going to be conflict. You know, we shouldn't get to... Um, uh, we shouldn't fantasize about a future where everybody gets along and everything. But, you know, as you said, we are all in this together. And it was really cool to hear someone who's right on the front line of farming and has literally just come off as combine harvesters talk to us because it rained. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, talk about that. It was just really, it makes me want to, I've got so many more questions. It makes me want to know, I know. more about farming and yeah. Well, big chat. another podcast episode to follow. Watch this space. Okay, Eva. You know what time it is? Quiz time! Yes, I'm going to put your brain to the test. And I am quite pleased with this quiz because it's a little more related to the episode than my What Three Words was, which was the most oh, come random. On, that, that was a hit, but this sounds <laughs> it good. It wasn't even a quiz. <laughs> okay, so this one is, have you played Guess Who before? The classic board game, please tell me have, with the faces and the flaps and the I think I know what you're alluding to. <laughs> you, guess, you guess who the people are. And anyway, famous game. Filled my childhood. Okay. So this game is Guess Who, but it's the long lead edition. Oh wow. Music, okay. please. <laughs> so I've got the names of some of Longleat's animals. That are there in the safari park and you have to tell me what animal they are so i'm just going to tell you the animals names okay and you have to tell me what species awesome so i'm going to pick three (laughs) (laughs) marcus rashford who's not there okay question one i'm going to give you two names but what species is it gordito and inny or gordito and oh. God, that was quite a good accent, wasn't it? What species is that? Gordito and I, Innie. I, I, or I want to say anteater. And Innie. Well, no, that's that's incorrect. <laughs> Gorilla. Shall I go through? Uh, no, you can only have one guess. So okay. Gordito and Innie are giant otters. No. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So cool. look out How for big is a giant otter? Giant. <laughs> Not like giant beaver of last episode. <laughs> yeah, a huge mega osser. Carry right, on. Next one. Um, Harry. Who is Harry? Oh, God. Um, 
who is Harry? That's a game in itself. Um, <laughs> really hope it's not the hippopotamus. I don't think it is actually. We talked to her when we were there. Uh, Harry is the. Da, 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 da. Ready when you are. On, no idea. No Take idea. Take a punt. Have a punt. Whatever the phrase is. Uh, a lion. Yes! Oh my god! <laughs> amazing. Surely yes. is a better name for Harry the Lion. Harry. Oh, amazing. Is he one of the old timers? I don't think there? Harry thinks so. Hey? Uh, I don't know. Um, oh. You have to ask him next time you're there. I'll pay more attention next time I'm yeah. on my way around. Yeah, right. Final question. Question three. One from two. two I'm name- relieved. Two names again. Ready? Uh, what species are these two names? Piglet and Peewee. Oh, Piglet wow. and Peewee. <laughs> Very <laughs> sweet. Um, Imagine if your dog was called Peewee. Oh, that would be a bit, be like, Peewee, Peewee here, Peewee. <laughs> so <it's> Peewee. <laughs> the dog name test. Can you call it across a field? Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I've also no idea. Sorry, I really wasn't paying attention, was I? Um, have a guess. Any, have a, any guess. You got it right last time. Worked out well. Are they types of mm. are they some sort of monkey uh good guess but no they are african pygmy goats oh, which are very cute cute piglet and diddy. Piglet so and there we go one out, out of three one out of three and that, that, i well guess done. at that <laughs> yeah that's pretty good <laughs> nice i do think though. harry's quite a good name for a lion thank you yeah. loving the relevance inspired yeah but inspired how well. yeah. Better. yeah i bet there's a good story behind it there usually is with those mm. guys Mm. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do some digging. Well, that brilliant quiz brings us to the end of this episode of the Lodgecast. We would like to say a huge thank you to Richard for joining us today and giving his perspective on farming for the environment. Yeah, no, that was brilliant. And thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading the Lodgecast. And while you're here, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming monthly episodes. We've got some crackers in the pipeline and we can't wait to share them with you. Please do leave us a lovely review. It really helps us reach new audiences and to grow the podcast so that we can keep bringing you amazing guests. Yeah, shameless plug, but why not also share the podcast with a friend or two or 10 who might be interested in beavers or nature restoration or maybe friends who just like a good quiz or a fact off. Or just a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And let's face it, who isn't interested in beavers? So for more from us, you can also visit our website, beavertrust.org, to read blogs um, and sign up to our newsletter. And as always, you can find Beaver Trust on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Beaver Trust. See you next month. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by the wonderful Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. <laughs>